confess their sins, repent from them, and find their life and their hope in Christ alone, they have the forgiveness of their sins. They may walk with a conscience that is clean. This is our hope and our comfort as we worship God also this morning. Let's then open the Word of God that He might now teach us. And we'll turn first to our main text that's from 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 9 and 10. Second Kings chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house. And the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel." And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. When Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, You know the fellow and his talk. And they said, That is not true. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and thus he spoke to me. Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Thus Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat the son of Nimshi conspired against Joram. Now Joram with all Israel had been on guard at Ramoth Gilead against Hazael king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hazel, king of Syria. So Jehu said, If this is your decision, then let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in, Israel, in Jezreel. Then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come, had come down to visit Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, Take a horseman and send to meet them, and let him say, Is it peace? So, so a man on horseback went to meet him and, and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. 
And the watchman reported, saying, The messenger reached them, but he is not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus the king has said, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. Again, the watchman reported, He reached them, but he is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Joram said, Make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram king of Israel and Ahaziah king of Judah set out, each in his chariot, and went to meet Jehu, and met him at the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be? so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many. Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah! And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart, and he sank into his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah the king of Judah saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagan. And Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is, which is by Iblium. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. His servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, son of Ahab, Ahaziah began to reign over Judah. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window and as Jehu entered the gate, he said, is it, uh, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank. And he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, This is Jezebel. Now Ahab had seventy sons in Samaria, so Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the rulers of the city, to the elders and to the guardians of the sons of Ahab, saying, Now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses, fortified cities also, and weapons, Select the best and fittest of your master's sons, and set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid, and said, Behold, the two kings could not stand before him. How then can we stand? So he who was over the palace, and he who was over the city, together with the elders and the guardians, sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants, and we will do all that you tell us. 
We will not make anyone king do whatever is good in your eyes. Then he wrote to them a second letter saying, If you are on my side, and if you are ready to obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as a letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. When the messenger came and told him they have brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until the morning. Then in the morning when he went out, he stood and said to all the people, you are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who struck down all these? Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of, nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men and his close friends and his priests, until he left him none remaining. Then he set out and went to Samaria. On the way when he was at beth Ekid of the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, And he said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the relatives of Ahaziah, and we came down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. He said, Take them alive. And they took them alive and slaughtered them at the pit of beth Achid, forty-two persons, and he spared none of them. And when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart true to my heart as mine is to yours? And Jehonadab answered, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he, came, so he gave him his hand, and Jehu took him up with him into the chariot. And he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria, till he had wiped them out, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshippers, and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshippers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, Sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. He said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out all the vestments for all the worshippers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab the son of Rechab, and he said to the worshippers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshippers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed eighty men outside and said, The man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an an end of, of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. So when they put out put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal. And they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Thus, 
Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. In those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Hazael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel, from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites and the Manassites, from Aroer, which is by the valley of Arnon, that is Gilead, and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoahaz his son reigned in his place. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. So far from Second Kings. Let's also take a detour briefly to Revelation chapter 19. Excuse me, Revelation 18. This text builds on some of the same imagery that's there in the text that we read. Revelation 18, verse 1. After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living." Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back, as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she has mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, 
horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was, that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their head, and they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of, the, of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his saints. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And all the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So far, the reading of God's Word. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 52, stanzas 1 through 3. The text that we'll be giving our attention to is 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10. Obviously, we will not be reading those chapters over, uh, though I trust you understand how they need to be held together in a long but a single Unit, And that's then what will be our focus, the dramatic things that happen in a very few short days. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, if you ever go to the British Museum in London, in England, one of the things that you'll see there is a stone pillar known as the Black Obelisk of Shalmaneser III. It was made in Assyria during the same time period as our chapter, and what makes it especially interesting is that it, it actually has a depiction of King Jehu bowing before the king of Assyria, and, or uh, the king of Syria, and giving him tribute. And that's interesting because it makes it the first known depiction of a person in the Bible, the first picture or image that you'll find. If you're curious what he looked like, I can give you a hint. He had a big beard, and that probably doesn't surprise anyone. 
But it goes to show that that obelisk goes to show something of the changing times when Israel is now bowing before other nations. It is no longer the great kingdom that it once was. Something else that's that's interesting and and ironic about this this black obelisk is that under the depiction it, it, uh, it reads, Jehu of the house of Omri. Now Jehu... Would, would not have appreciated that description because it was his life's purpose to destroy the house of Omri. That's what we just read about, how he wanted to kill every descendant of Ahab. But there he is on the black obelisk inscribed for all ages as Jehu of the house of Omri. Well, Jehu is a unique king in a lot of ways. Uh, not only is he the first person to have his picture engraved that we can actually see, but he's also the father of the longest-lasting dynasty in Israel. It's a significant fact. He, he reigned for, I believe, 28 years. That's the longest dynasty in Israel. Uh, uh, him and, and together with his children become the longest dynasty in Israel. And they last for four generations. And most impressively of all, Jehu is the only king of the northern tribes of whom it is said he did right in the eyes of the Lord. Every other king in Israel says he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, there is a qualification. It does say he did not do right with all his heart because he still maintained the worship of the golden calves. But we can't ignore the fact that here's one king out of all of the kings of Israel of whom it says he did what was right. That's what we want to think about this morning. What's the significance of Jehu for us today? Uh, I want to ask essentially three questions, and and really these are the same questions we ask of of every text in the book of Kings, and they are this. First, what do we learn here about God? What do we learn in our text about God? Uh, That's always the most important, the first question to ask. Uh, Second, I would want to ask, what, what does this teach about ourselves, our own human condition before a righteous God. And then thirdly, uh, putting those two things together, what does this teach us about what God is doing about our broken, fallen human condition? Uh, We ourselves are part of the same story, but in a very different age. Uh, We're in a different chapter, but it's one story. And God is busy in our times also working. So if we can see, what does God do about the broken human condition in that day? We can learn something about what God is also doing in our day. So those are the things we want to ask when we look at at Jehu's reign. Now, something we want to recognize from the outset about Jehu is that even though he did reign for for 28 years, we don't actually get to know anything at all about what his reign was like other than that positive assessment that he did what was right. Uh, The only things we get to know about Jehu are the, the things, these things that happened in the first days, in the beginning of his reign, uh, when he overthrew the house of Ahab. And that's what the Bible wants us to focus on. That judgment, that judgment of Ahab has been a long, long time coming. All the way back in 1 Kings 19. Uh, I'm sure you don't remember even uh, that sermon that far back. But even then, God promised, that Eli- God promised Elijah that he would judge the kingdom of, uh, of Ahab through Jehu. 
And then in chapter 21, that's the episode where Ahab and Jezebel have innocent Naboth killed in order to take his field for a vegetable garden. Uh, God declared through Elijah that uh, the house of Ahab would be utterly destroyed. And yet all these years, nothing has happened. And I'm sure many Israelites during Jehoram's reign, uh, that's, that's the, the descendant of Ahab in, in the last chapters, uh, many of them were probably wondering, is God actually going to make good on that promise that this reign is going to come to an end? And probably a good many of them were thinking, maybe it would be better if God didn't make good on that promise. After all, Jehoram did at least most of the time cooperate with, with Elisha. He even was a, a king that worshipped Yahweh in name. So probably there was a good number in Israel thinking, hopefully God just forgets about that judgment, because really Jehoram's probably the best that we can expect. Well, what we see in the beginning of this chapter is that God has not forgotten anything at all. Uh, Back in 1 Kings 19, God had given three tasks to Elijah. Uh, They were to go anoint Hazael as king of Syria, to anoint Jehu as king of Israel, and to anoint Elisha as prophet. Now, Elijah never did any of those things. Uh, we don't know why. Was it fear? Was it uh, a, lo- a loss of a sense of purpose? Uh, but Eli- Elijah never did that. The best he did was throw his cloak over Elisha and figured that counted as an anointing. But he never even went to Hazael or, or Jehu. And so now we're wondering, you know, did God let the whole matter drop because Elijah didn't do what he was supposed to do? Well, chapter 8, which we saw last week, uh, shows us that God has not forgotten a thing. That's where we suddenly find Elisha in Syria anointing Hazael after all. All these years, God has not forgotten what he said he was going to do. So Elisha sends his servants in this chapter now to go and anoint Jehu. Here's the the last of, of the three things that Elijah had to do. Go anoint Jehu. Now, the, the, the account is very interesting, and it's revealing, too, about Jehu's character, and also about the situation in Israel. This, this prophet shows up in this council of commanders of the army, and, and he, he walks in and he says, I have a message for you, O commander. Now, the problem with that is that Jehoram had set things up such that there was no commander of the army. Uh, commanders of the army have a tendency to throw coups. Uh, They tend to overthrow kings. So Jehoram had set things up that there was no commander. They were just all equals. Well, the problem is that that never really works. Uh, One person always comes to the fore. So he walks into the room and says, I have a message for you, O commander. And, of course, Jehu, the de facto commander, says, uh, to which one of us do you want to speak? though he knows perfectly well. And so the prophet uh, points out the obvious. He says, to you, O commander. So he goes and, and he speaks with the prophet. And I think one of the reasons God gives us a glimpse of that, that little exchange is to help us see that God had already prepared the stage for Jehu to come, even though Jehoram had set everything up to prevent it from happening. He knew something of judgment that was coming against his kingdom, and so he put measures in place to make sure they wouldn't happen, and yet everyone knows Jehu's our de facto commander, and things are ripe for change. And that's what you see also in the next verses as 
uh, Jehu goes out before the prophets and, and or before the, the, the council of commanders and he says, you know, that prophet said something about me being king and blah, blah, blah. And, and the, the, other, the other commanders, as soon as they hear that, they proclaim, good idea, Jehu is king. You know, the stage was ripe for a revolution. And from that moment, things unfolded very, very quickly. And I hope you got that sense as, as we read through these chapters, how quickly things were happening, how, how fast things change in the kingdom of God. Verses 14 to 28, Jehoram has, uh, or Jehu has Jehoram, the king, killed. That's the king of Israel, along with Ahaziah, the king of Judah. Just total overthrow in both kingdoms. So in a matter of hours, both of these kings are suddenly dead. Then in verses 30 to 37, Jehu has Jezebel thrown out of the window and killed. Then in chapter 10, verses 1 to 11, Jehu slaughtered every one of Ahab's sons and grandsons. Then in verses 12 to 14, he slaughters all of Ahaziah's relatives that lived in Israel. And then in verses 18 to 27, he slaughtered every one of the priests of Baal, and he turns the temple of Baal into a latrine. That fast, every single institution of power in Israel and a good number in Judah were suddenly overthrown in a matter of a few days. Well, what are we to make of this? What do we learn from that about our God, about our condition, and about uh, the, the way that God is working among us. Well, the first thing we want to uh, observe uh, begins with, with this woman, Jezebel. That's where the entire story really begins, and that's really the focal point. It's the centerpiece of these two chapters. Jezebel is much, much more than just a wicked woman. Uh, by this time, she's become larger than life. She's the, the very embodiment of idolatry, perversity, and evil. Uh, she's the source of the Baal worship that had spread like a plague through, through Israel. And so if there's anything that we're supposed to recognize about, uh, about Jezebel, it's that the, the worship of Baal uh, began with Jezebel and was a disease, like a cancer, that had made its way throughout all of Israel. And Jezebel is the first tumor. She's there at the beginning. Now, we should, we should notice that and we should take that to heart uh, because one of the big themes in these two chapters that comes up over and over again is, is this question. I don't know if you noticed it. This question, is there peace? It, it gets, sometimes, there's a few times in our chapters where it's translated, is everything well? Uh, but it's the same question, ha-shalom, is there peace? You see that question in chapter 9, verses 11 17, 18, 19, 22, and 31. Uh, peace, shalom, it's the Hebrew word for, for wellness of spirit. It's, it, it's very much uh, along the lines of the hymn, it is well with my soul. That's the, the, the peace uh, that, uh, that it speaks of. Um, it's the same in the New Testament uh, where it speaks of the peace of God will guard your hearts. It's that peace, that wellness with God. And that's the big question throughout this chapter. Is there peace? And Jehu's response to that question is right on the money. Uh, To the messengers of Jehoram, he says, what do you have to do with peace? And then to Jehoram himself, he gets to the heart of the problem. How could there be peace, wellness in Israel 
as long as the sorceries and whorings of your, Je- your mother Jezebel are so many. Now here's the reality. God has built the world in such a way that, that we will never have peace except in relationship with God. When that relationship is broken, there will not be peace. There will be disorder and it will lead to utter misery and absence of peace. And that's the picture we're supposed to get of Israel. Uh, the root of fallen, broken, uh, miserable people is a lack of peace with God. It's hearts that don't know God uh, because they have something else enthroned on their hearts in the throne of God. Whatever it is, whether it's Baal or whether it's some other God, money, uh, power, uh, pleasure, whatever that God may be, there is no peace when idolatry reigns on the throne of God in our hearts. There's no peace with idolatry. It's impossible. And that's the point that Jehu is making. And so I hope by this point in the book of Kings, as we've worked through this, and it's just one judgment after another, uh, I hope that by this point all of us have developed this this gut-level reaction against the worship of Baal. Every time the people worship Baal, disorder, misery, and judgment follow. Uh, We should hate the worship of Baal uh, by this point. And the same would be true of the worship of any other idol that we might put also on on the throne in our hearts. It's just as much true in our day as it was in that day that idolatry leads to brokenness and to misery. Uh, And so the, the disintegration in Israel is not the problem in itself, it's the symptom of the problem that is idolatry. Baal worship was the source of the problem. So we want to recognize in the first place, idolatry is a cancer. Putting anything on the throne of God in our hearts begins as a cancer that spreads throughout our entire lives. Uh, We need to recognize that in the book of Kings. And and so if if we recognize that, we should have by this point a deep gut-level hatred for this woman Jezebel. We should. We should hate her. I say that strongly, but we should hate her. Uh, hatred, hatred is simply the corollary of love. You cannot love without also hating. Uh, if you love your children, for example, you, you hate anything that might threaten or harm them. Uh, you cannot love without hating. If you love God, you should hate anything that leads to a breakdown of the peace that we have with God. We should hate it with all our being. And that means that whatever our reactions might be to this this gory chapter, these two gory chapters, one thing we should do is give thanks that the Queen Jezebel is dead and gone. If idolatry is the cancer that kills human life, Jezebel is the first tumor from which that cancer began, and she needed to be put to death. Our second observation concerns the judgment of God. And it's this, when the judgment of God comes, it comes quickly and it comes relentlessly. It comes with devastating power. We want to recognize that in the judgment that came through Ahab and take that to heart. We might well think of the institutions of power in our own country as well. 
Uh, Think of the the centers of power and evil that have reigned in this country for decades, even almost for centuries. It's easy uh, from where we stand now to, to become cynical to believe that you know evil has gotten the upper hand and there ain't nothing we can do about it. Nothing will ever change the fact that evil men reign in power. I'm sure is, many Israelites had the same view about Jehoram. And yet, in a matter of a few short days, every center of power was overthrown. That judgment came, and it came with a force and a viciousness that left Jezebel and every one of Jehoram's uh, Jehoram's princes helpless to stop it. Uh, They were there feasting, and suddenly they were the victims of the guards who were meant to protect them. There was nowhere for them to run. That's how God's judgment often comes. Uh, Jehu's coup was the work of God uh, through the prophet sent by Elisha. And for Ahab and Jehoram and Jezebel and Ahaziah and the scores of, of princes who worshipped human power, that was their God. Human skill, political skill and power. Suddenly they found themselves, uh, though they thought they were untouchable, they found themselves helpless against the very beast that they had worshipped. Helpless against a human political skill and power that was greater than them. This chapter does a a wonderful job, I think, of showing Jehu's political skills. Uh, I hope you notice that as well. He was a master of politics. Uh, In each and every scene, you can see Jehu coercing people, uh, forcing others to join his coup. Even in the, in the coronation scene in, in chapter 9, where he's with the council of commanders of the army, uh, he says when they proclaim Jehu as king, he still says, okay, if this is your decision, so he makes them own it, then you must go and do such and such. Uh, so you see his, his skill. He says, if you're going to join me, this isn't going to be my coup. This is going to be your coup as well. Uh, He goes to Jezreel to kill Jehoram. And and you see the same thing with Jehoram's messengers. Jehoram sends one after another, and and he makes them make a decision on the spot. Are you going to stand with me, or are you going to go die with him? They have no choice. They can't even go back and report to their master. He says, get in line, and the implication is, if you don't, uh, you will fall right now. It's Jehoram's life, your master's life, or yours. You see his political skill again. Uh, the same when he, <clears throat> when he shows up in the palace in Jezreel. He does the same thing to the eunuchs. He looks up at the window and he says, who's on my side? In other words, it's time to make a choice. You're going to stand with Jezebel or, and die with her, or are you going to throw her out of the window? You join me or you die. And it's the same political skill. Uh, again, you see it with the guardians of the sons of Ahab. Uh, they, they, would, they would really like to just... They're, what they say is, just go do whatever you want. Don't, don't get us involved, in other words. But he doesn't give them that option. He says, if, so he says, if you want to fight, pick the best of your sons and fight for your lives. And they know that they don't have a fighting chance. So they say, go, go do whatever you want. And he says, all right, fine. Then take the heads of your master's sons and send them to me in baskets. In other words, it's one or the other. And again, he forces them to choose a side. And then, even then, he, he has all those heads, it's a gory thing, but he has all those heads piled up outside the gate of the city, and when the people woke up in the morning, they found that big pile there, 
And, and again, Jehu's political skill is on display. Uh, he, he says, you know, I killed Jehoram and Ahaziah. I own that. But I didn't kill these people. And the implication is, you're as much in it as I am. Your hands are as bloody as mine. And again, they have no choice but to join him. Well, Jehu's political skill then is on, on display for us. And here's why. Ahab and Jezebel and Jehoram put their trust in political power and skill. That was their defense and their security. That was the God that they worshipped, their own political skill. And that's why God appointed, of all people, Jehu to take them down. Because he could play their game better than they could play it themselves. And suddenly we get to watch as, as suddenly they see everything they trusted in turning against them, and they are absolutely helpless to stop it. You see there the judgment of God. Uh, so we see how, how skilled Jehu is so that we can see how helpless and how foolish Jehoram and Ahab and Jezebel were. They chose to put their trust in man and in man's political power, and now we see them in an hour of desperation with nowhere to turn as the very beast that they worshipped turned around to eat them as well. Well, that's the judgment of God. And as we sang in in Psalm 52, the righteous should see it and fear. That's the family of Ahab and Jezebel. And let's not forget who they are, Ahab and Jezebel, the people who had the innocent Naboth and uh, Chronicles tells us also his sons murdered as they plotted and lied and cajoled the, the elders of the city to, to work against Naboth and to have him murdered. And now the chapter wants us to see how God made Jehu play a better game than they could play themselves so that they could see what it's like to have letters. You see the letters that are being written, right? To have letters written to the elders of the city against them. You reap what you sow. You sow lies and murder, you will reap lies and murder. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. He who lives by the mob will die by the mob. Whatever beast you worship, that is the beast that will turn around and eat you. So what happened to to Jezebel and, and to the entire house of Ahab is a foretaste of the day of judgment as well. That's why we read from Revelation uh, chapter 18. Uh, in, in the rest of Scripture, uh, Jezebel, her name becomes a symbol for idolatry and unfaithfulness. She becomes known as, as the great whore. You see that theme coming back over and over in, in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah. Uh, she's the great whore of idolatry. And, and in Revelation 18, uh, we get a picture of the judgment that comes upon that great harlot. Uh, and, and that harlot there, where it speaks of Babylon the Great, uh, it's essentially the entire world system in opposition to God. I think the f- foremost reference, if you read the broader context, is the city of Jerusalem, known as Babylon because of its unfaithfulness. But it stands there as, as, a, as a symbol for the entire Uh, the entire world system in opposition to God. You see in that chapter a blending 
of, of the city of Jerusalem, the city that, that killed all its prophets. That's right. It says the judgment against, against this city for, the, for slaying the prophets of God. Uh, but also there's, there's elements of Rome, the world, mixed into this Babylon the Great. And together they become the great harlot. And the chapter depicts the, the utter destruction of that great harlot. And, and also, also the shock and the dismay of the people who put their trust in that great harlot. That's why it reads that long list of all the things we loved about that great harlot, the gold, the silver, the cinnamon, spices, and so forth. It says the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They'll stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, Babylon, uh, you mighty city, in a single hour, your judgment has come. That's how quick and how devastating the judgment of God is. And, and, and I wanted to notice uh, from Revelations eight, Revelation 18 and 19 that there's also a reaction. So there's a reaction from the world, but there's also a reaction from the church. Uh, Revelation 18, verse 20, Rejoice over her says the church, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. What happened under Jehu is a picture of the kind of thing that will happen to every kingdom, every political power that raises itself up against the kingdom of God. A part of that judgment comes in the course of history like it did for Jehu, like it did for Jerusalem, like it did eventually for Rome. Some of those judgments come in the course of history, and they too are, are devastating. The people look, and they're shocked and dismayed. Uh, but it's ultimately a judgment that comes at the end of all time. And what we need to recognize is that we as Christians, we are hoping and praying for a day that the world hopes will never come. A day where the world will look and weep and say, what happened to the great cities of our day? Now, I want you to notice also something about Jezebel herself. Uh, the most graphic part of the story has to be the, the account of the death of Jezebel. And it talks about her blood spattering and the dogs e- eating her flesh and defecating it all over the fields. Uh, and it's very graphic. But notice how Jezebel herself went and faced her death. Uh, she heard the news of Jehoram's death, so she knew what was coming to her. And what did she do? She put on her makeup. She went and did her hair. She dressed like a queen because she wanted to go out like a queen. Now, we might look at that and say, that's pretty admirable uh, to say, I know I'm going to die, and so I'm going to die like a queen. But lest we admire her, let's remember that this is Jezebel, wicked to the absolute core. But this is what it looks like when an unrepentant sinner stands in the face of hell, in the face of eternity. If we think that people are are, are fundamentally good and when they see the judgment of God, they'll turn around and and repent, uh, they will suddenly bow before God. If we think that, take a good hard look at Jezebel. This is sin apart from the grace of God. Uh, stubborn, proud, rebellious, and spiteful to the very end, and right on into eternity. 
It's what we see in the heart of Jezebel in her last moment. No sorrow for her sin, uh, no regret, but rather boldly, even proudly, stepping forward into eternity, cursing Jehu with her last words. And make no mistake, that happens, and it happens every day as sinners stand before the judgment of God and spit in His face and curse Him as they head out into eternity. Repentance, true repentance, is a gift from God that He gives to those whom He chooses. And apart from that gift, every one of us would be like Jezebel. Jezebel is the human heart that is untouched by the grace of God. So that's the second observation we want to make. The judgment of God, which when it comes, is swift and terrible, which the righteous should see and fear. The last observation I want to make is about Jehu. And and then once I do that, I want to take us directly to Christ and think about what does this teach us also about Christ. And maybe you find Jehu a repulsive man. All that gore and all these heads can have that effect. But if you step into the shoes of the church of that day, I think your feelings would probably be a bit more complex. We can only imagine what the relatives of Naboth, if there were any left, what they would have thought about Jehu. They would have, uh, they, they would have certainly been grateful to God for a king like Jehu. If we hate, as we should, we hate Jezebel with all, our, with all our might, then we should have some gratitude and even praise for a man like Jehu. And if you doubt me on that, uh, isn't that exactly what, uh, what the Lord himself says to Jehu at the end of chapter 10? The Lord says to him, because you have done well, all the blood, all the gore, God says, because you've done well, in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. This man did what was right in the eyes of God. He did what was in God's heart to do, to destroy the kingdom of Ahab and Jezebel. If idolatry was the cancer, and Jezebel was the first tumor, then Jehu is the chemotherapy that destroys every institution, good and evil, in Israel, wipes everything clean in order to destroy the cancer that existed in Israel. That being said, you knew some qualification was coming, we should also be careful not to fall in love with a man like Jehu. There's a ditch on the other side of this road as well. Jehu was an anointed one of God. There's no question about that. And that way he's even a Messiah figure, a picture of of Christ in the judgment that he carries out. And yet we are told and forewarned in very clear terms that he did not do what was right with all his heart. In fact, we can see this right from the very beginning. Uh, There's this whole story of when he and the commanders are gathered together and the prophet comes and and they ask him, uh, you know, what did that, what did that, guys say, and he said, well, you know the madman and all his babbling. Uh, There's not a deep respect here for for the prophets of God either. Now, you you see their tune changes very quickly when they realize this might actually work to our political advantage. 
Uh, and, and so from then on, Jehu becomes one who has zeal for the Lord. And he even says this. He pulls a Jonadab up in his chariot and says, Come and see my zeal for the Lord. There's a man who's going who's gonna to take on that persona. But we need to realize uh, when we see that that zeal was not exactly on display behind closed doors, uh, we need to realize this was an alliance of convenience, not an alliance of conviction. Let me be be frank about this. Sometimes politicians come along and massively shake up the system. They, They drain the swamp, so to speak. And that is God's righteous judgment against those evil institutions of power. The righteous should see it and rejoice. Psalm 52. There's a deep and appropriate gratitude that the saints of God should feel when they see centers and powers of evil overthrown. But we should also not get too romantic about it. The temptation in Jehu's day was to uh, wrongly believe uh, that that this was the man who was going to herald in the new kingdom of God. He was going to bring about a new age. And that would have been a terrible assumption, a terrible mistake to make, because at the end of the day, and it was clear right from the beginning, his heart was not in the right place before God. His kingdom was riddled with compromise. And that's the final assessment we get from God. He did what was right, but it was not coming from his heart. And and in the end, it's only a few generations later, his kingdom does crumble as well. The kingdom of God, here's the point, can only ever come through a king who fears God with all his heart, which Jehu did not. Look for it somewhere else. In any prince, in any president, in any prime minister, look for it there and you will be disappointed. You will not find the kingdom of God except in Christ. And that's the gospel for us as we reflect on these chapters First, there's the judgment of God, which we do see against the world orders, the kingdoms of idolatry, the centers of evil and power. That is coming. That judgment is coming. It might come temporally. In other words, uh, here on earth, those institutions of power, more often than not, are overthrown by God here on earth. And that, for the righteous, is cause for rejoicing. If we're going to learn to imitate the heart of God in these chapters, we we should rejoice when we see evil overthrown. That's part of the prayer uh, that the Lord Jesus taught us as well. Your kingdom come. As the catechism uh, explains that, it, it says, destroy every power that raises itself up against you. That's something we should pray for and something we should rejoice when we see it. Uh, there is evil. In this world, there are powers of evil that need to be overthrown, and they will be overthrown. Uh, And that's the first thing, then, that we should see in in the book of Kings. That judgment comes, and it comes fast. And everybody, the righteous and the wicked, are shocked by it. The righteous rejoice, the wicked are dismayed. And we should be praying for that day. Uh, We should also recognize the kingdoms of this world are firmly in God's hands. He raises up and He brings down. Even when it looks like that kingdom ain't never coming down, God brings it down. Evil can reach terrible 
proportions, and it has in times and places in history, and yet every evil government has its days numbered. Why? Because Christ is reigning, and He has said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. They will submit to Him. And then lastly, one of the the most glorious ways that the kingdom of Christ is vanquishing evil is through the gospel of the cross, on which Christ conquered the most evil center of power, that is, Satan himself. In other words, uh, the judgment that God poured out on Jezebel here is a picture of the judgment of God, but it is also a judgment that was poured out already on Christ in the first place so that it would not have to be poured out on us. Uh, Because, brothers and sisters, by nature... We, by, by our nature, are allies or were allies of the kingdom of Jezebel. That's the kingdom from which we come. Now, after, after this sermon, we're going to take a break from Kings, and we're going to spend probably six or so months in Colossians. And this is the big theme of Colossians as well, uh, that we have been rescued from a dark kingdom and brought into, by God's grace, into a kingdom of light. Apart from the church of Christ, there's not a single good kingdom that will last here on earth. Jehu's kingdom was good while it lasted. It was used by God, but it could not last forever because it was still flawed by idolatry. Our kingdom, our allegiance, is the kingdom of Christ. It was tiny and minuscule in that day, and yet there was a church in that day. There were the prophets and there were the sons of the prophets. The church of that day... And that church would come and reign and rule over the world. And it will still today. So, brothers and sisters, consider what God has done for us. Yes, there is a terrible judgment, and we should tremble at seeing it. God's judgments are terrible, and they are well-deserved. But also rejoice. Rejoice because the downfall of the kingdoms of this world means the rising up of the kingdom of Christ, and that's a kingdom that will last forever. Nothing can be better news than that the Messiah is coming. Though He comes in judgment, yet He is coming, and He is reigning, and He is building His kingdom even now. And He has called you and me out of the harlotry, the the idolatry, the sorcery of the kingdoms of this world, and calls us into the pure, glorious kingdom of Christ, Uh, the Christ whose heart is not divided as Jehu's heart was, the Christ who followed God with all his heart and whose kingdom is a kingdom of people whose hearts are renewed like his to follow God with all their heart. That's our kingdom. That's our hope. That's our future. Amen.